Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for tuning in for season two. Season one was a learning experience, an opportunity for growth, and so much fun. Your feedback has been wonderful. If you like the show, we'd ask that you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know that sounds corny, but it actually helps. Or you can simply tell a friend. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We are stand-up comedians discussing mental health topics and alternative treatments. Although we do laugh and joke on this show, we are in no way trying to mock or make light of people's struggles. And a quick content warning. Today's episode covers topics of body image, dysmorphia, and eating disorders. It could be particularly triggering to those who struggle with these issues. As always, we encourage you to listen only as you're comfortable and take care of yourself. When it comes to body image or it comes to relationships with food, disordered eating, appearance, anything like that, there's a lot, it's not culturally acceptable to talk about those things, whether you're talking about them on television or talking about them in magazines or on Instagram or just talking among each other. Those things don't come up. And so unless it's in a in a roasting kind of way. Right. And then you're just like bing 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 hurting each other's feelings, but not mentioning it because that's gay. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not a pussy. I'm standing in the shower. It's 11 p.m. I always shower at night. It occurs to me that I had no dinner and that I'm hungry. But it's really too late and I already brushed my teeth and so I congratulate myself for getting so busy that I didn't eat. I'm industrious. I'm productive. Deprivation is an indication of moral superiority. For me, thinking this way is reflexive. My body is healthier than it was some years ago, but my mind, that's a work in progress. For as open and vulnerable and self-effacing as I try to be to destigmatize and take the embarrassment out of discussing mental health, this thing I avoid. Because it's not supposed to be this way. I'm a feminist, a lesbian for Christ's sake. Cerebrally, I believe that food nourishes more than the body. Food is connection and culture and celebration, and everyone deserves to partake in it. And all bodies are beautiful. And all bodies are beautiful. But somewhere in there, I got scrambled. I hardly ever say that I have an eating disorder. I sometimes will say I have a complicated relationship with my body, or I have a complicated relationship with food, but I try not to pathologize it. I've resisted formal treatment for it. Maybe it would be more resolved if I hadn't. I've lied to therapists. I've lied to friends. I've lied to partners. I've hidden this problem, promising that I would work on it on my own. And in some ways, I have. I'm still not exactly sure how to talk about it. Like, people think I'm confident and crave attention because I'm a comedian, right? But the exact 
opposite is actually true. I prefer not to be noticed, or to be noticed only on my own terms. For example, I wear shoes a size and a half bigger than I am because I hate when people are like, oh, look at your teeny tiny little feet. In ways, my personality has helped some of my more troubling behaviors around food. People notice weight loss. People notice paleness and shakiness. People comment if you're not eating at a dinner party or if you don't order anything at the diner after a show. People are not shy about saying, you look anorexic. There was a time when I was hiding to avoid these kind of interactions, and now I avoid these interactions by behaving like I'm normal. No big deal, y'all. Look at me, eating and having a beer like the rest of the people I imagine just eat what they want, when they want. It's been a fake-it-till-I-make-it kind of progress. I catch the destructive thoughts before they become destructive behaviors, most of the time. And look, I know I'm not the only one whose tongue betrays the truth in their mind. I can certainly talk the talk of self-care and self-acceptance and body positivity. I know I'm not the only one who wants all the comfort and understanding and love of self for those around me. I know I'm not the only one who struggles to give that love or that grace to myself. Restriction and pushing my body to extremes was an unhealthy thing I did to feel better about myself. When I am in that trance of unworthiness, an artificial way of giving back to myself is to ignore my physical needs. And it's way more complicated than wanting to be thin or to adhere to some societal idea of what an attractive body is. No, for me, it was about physically seeing the results of my self-control. Somewhere, at some time, a devil whispered in my ear, that anything other than starvation is greed. And I'm a person who gives. My whole identity is wrapped up in the denial of self. Part of why the concept of self-love feels so trying to me is that self-love feels selfish, and putting oneself before others feels like a character flaw. On this podcast that doesn't shy away from any topic, I likely would have avoided this topic forever if it weren't for our guest today. Chris William is a fellow stand-up comedian and teacher. I was on an episode of his podcast, Riff Busters, you should check them out, when I noticed that his co-host was picking on Chris's weight. It made me wildly uncomfortable. But Chris's responses were so astute, so aware, self-actualized rather than self-hating, that I knew I had to talk to him more. Today you'll hear me talk to Chris and then Tyler, about what it means to have a body and learn to love it, or at least work on that. On that note, we are so glad you're here. You're listening to The Cure with Audrey Marsh and Tyler Weggert. Awesome. Uh, All right, well, I'm Chris William. Uh, I live in central Pennsylvania in like the Lewisburg area, uh, and I've been doing stand-up comedy for seven years at this point. been in it a while kind of started it in our area there was really nothing like up this way um but in college I worked at an art gallery we started doing it there and then kind of just expanded outward from there but uh I've also been uh uh, overweight my entire life like I I think four or five years old was the last time I was thin uh (laughs) so it's been it's been something that's been with me and 
you know, I've, uh, it has shaped my approach to the world. I mean, in the same way, you know, it, there's part of, a, I think there's part of everyone that wishes it didn't happen this way, but the way we look is the biggest effect on how we navigate life um, mm-hmm. and how we go about things. So uh, early on and, and all through, uh, that has been probably, I think, uh, I, I think it's a, fir- obviously it's the first thing people notice about me. You can't help it. <laughs> I, I think that comes first and foremost. Yeah. Do you feel like that's always been the case? Or uh, when I was thinking about this, I, I, I was thinking about all the ways that there are societal expectations for so many things, how you look, how successful you are, um, how, like whether you're gender conforming, all of those things that say something about you right away. Um, and that we are internalizing all of the time so that when you go out anywhere is that the first consideration that you're having is that you have an overweight body well i i think now no because i've become um like much more confident and uh comfortable with myself and like happy um but i know like uh from I would say probably 14 to like 20. Um, my primary concern was like not being uh, the the stereotypical fat person. I uh, I never wanted to like, I not that personal hygiene is like an exception, but I was like on, I was obsessive over my personal hygiene because I didn't want to ever be uh smelly i didn't want to ever smell bad um i like i like physically pushed myself a lot more than probably a lot of other overweight kids because i didn't want to be like i don't want to be left out or it assume i didn't want to you know go play football or go on a hike or go for a walk or do all this Mm -hmm. other stuff that like my friends wanted to do and not necessarily that that's a bad thing but I think I just always kind of pushed myself more or pushed them into doing that stuff because I felt the need to like convince them like, Hey, I'm not like every other fat person, uh, you know, which, which was also just a, a thing that I like hindsight. I just made that up in my head. You know what I mean? Well, like, that's mo- that's like, like internalized fat phobia where yeah. you're like every other fat person is this. And I don't want to like, I, th- I think that translates so well to other like people who like perception like I like if you didn't want to be like all the other poor kids or something like that yeah absolutely yeah and I I think that um yeah it was like obsessive at that point you know to be like to clean I wanted to wear nice clothes I wanted to have nice shoes I like and it's normal to have that stuff and want that stuff as a teenager but I wanted that stuff so much more Mm -hmm. because it felt like it meant so much more if I could not be different in that way you know if that was a way that i could try to be like everyone else and it's funny too because the internalized fat phobia has come it's honestly gotten to be so much that um i i think i have like a low-grade body dysmorphia in the sense of i never feel overweight until i see myself in a mirror okay 
like it's uh i i don't think of myself as a fat person i don't and i have like um i have some other like i don't have object permanence really i don't have a mind's eye so like for example i don't realize how cartoonishly big my pants are until i go to put my pants on in the morning and that's just like a it's almost like i it's gotten better now but when i was younger i had to have like a daily reckoning with being a fat person one of the things that you say in your stand-up that really kind of it just like struck at my heart you said people that look like me were either loved too much or not enough and i am certainly the latter so uh my parents split custody they my parents separated when i was three years old and um for my dad <clears throat> our i mean he was a bachelor um and he was like young and partying was his like priority still so like very often I'd go to his house, like, so there were weekends where we would go to, I would go to my dad's and then he would take me to uh, our cousin's house where he would party with like the adults in the family um, who were all around the same age and they would party all weekend. And for a period of time, I was the only kid. Um, mm -hmm. So like they would just buy like two large Domino's pizzas and that would just be my food for the weekend. Like, I would eat it Friday night for dinner. I'd eat it for lunch and dinner Saturday. And then I'd probably, if I, if my dad was like, or if I was lucky, uh, my dad and I would stop somewhere to eat on the way home on Sunday when he was taking me back to my mom's. Um, and on the weekends where we didn't party, we still ate out for every meal. Um, mm -hmm. Like he just didn't cook. Uh, so like, I do think that that was some responsibility. And then on my maternal side, um, I don't know if it was like guilt over the situation, but, or, or what exactly it was, but like, um, food was the only thing that was ever like given into for me on that end. Like they didn't spend a lot of money on like games or like toys for us. We didn't go on experiences. We never went on a vacation. It was nothing like that. But like, if, you know, I, if we had dinner at, at five, and at 9.30 or 10 o'clock, I was hungry. My mom would run to Wendy's and get food. Like, mm -hmm. so it was, it was, um, I think for one parent, it was, it was necessity, a poor diet. And for the other parent, it was, um, compensation. Yeah. Compensation. Um, and I think that like now I definitely, um, as an adult, I have, I still have like a unhealthy relationship with food, but it, in different ways. Um, like, uh, this is something I definitely need to work on, but I, I use it as like an incentive tool for myself. Like a lot of times in college, for example, or like now as a teacher, um, if I have like curriculum, I have to like finish, mm -hmm. I will not let myself eat until I finish that, until I finish that work. Like, mm -hmm. because again, that, that is, it was like a reward chit for me for so much of my life that now it is still kind of that way of like, okay, I'm really, really hungry. Let this be my motivation to get, to get it done. So I'm still myself building that relationship with food in like a um non non-necessity sort of way you know what i mean like i uh i have a, a friend who's a teacher who he hates eating it's like he literally hates it it's the most annoying thing to him um and i'm so jealous that he sees it as a utility like mm. he, he looks at it as like pooping and peeing and drinking water He's like, it's you just think something that's I, real, though. 
I do. I do. And you okay. know how I know, I think I know it's real because every day for 180 days, he brings a bowl of lettuce with hot sauce on it for lunch. That is his lunch every day. Like he's I'll, not. I, I'll cut this if he'll listen to this. Yeah, he won't. But that doesn't sound. I, I, to me, that sounds like that is a man with an eating disorder. Oh, I, I for sure think it started that way. And that is why he now he had like from talking to him and building a relationship with him. I think he just kind of went the other way where he never had a say in food and never got what he wanted in his house mm -hmm. growing up. Like it was just never an option for him. So now as an adult, he he has just continued. He wants no say in it. He just will do whatever simple like he does whatever is the absolute easiest, least restrictive thing like. Right. And, and it is. You know, I, I think I think food potentially has like a, a very healthy you can have a very healthy and positive relationship with it. I think he's just in the other direction. But, you know, there is part of me that like I do wish I could see it as just the utility. superpowers like uh, every piece of furniture I see calculations start going on in my mind about whether or not it can hold me it's like uh, it's like goodwill hunting but if it was all about chairs and like the level of embarrassment if I break it like I was at Cheesecake Factory recently because I have priorities and when shit opened up I was like yeah we're going back to Cheesecake Factory and they sat us at a high top table. And I'm pretty sure those chairs are made of palm fronds and whiskers. <laughs> I've never been closer to floating in my life. I think there is a societal allowance mm -hmm. for people who have a relationship with food like yours, where yes. food is a reward. And there is societal affirmation for people like your friend. Is your friend overweight? No. Right. So to say like he obviously like you want the relationship with food that he has he has a disordered relationship with food as well i think i'm giving chris a little bit of a hard time here with this lettuce eating friend because i recognize this language so much when the topic of food comes up i say i'm uninterested in food I'll eat, but there's nothing exciting about food for me. I'm never excited to try a new restaurant or try regional food in a place that I'm visiting. This isn't a lie, but it's not because I'm some utilitarian pragmatist. Food stresses me the fuck out. I don't want to talk about it or think about it. I want to get the act of eating over with as soon as possible. And I, my relationship with food is, is something, you know, that I've worked on for a long time that's not great. But 
when you say, I wish I could be like him, what you're saying is I want to trade my unhealthy relationship with food for an unhealthy relationship with food that I associate with a person who has a thin body. Yeah. And while it might be a product of being either overindulged or like there was a compensation for things that were lacking that was filled with food or also that your your father was letting you eat whatever i feel like all of those things could happen to a person who then grew up to have a thin body yeah and what what happened for you is not that Mm -hmm. maybe it's genetics maybe it's uh mostly probably genetics it's i think but we don't see as a society we 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 punish people who show all of that hurt on the outside mm-hmm. and we just don't even think about or we kind of laud or we say here this guy bringing a bowl of lettuce with hot sauce on it and saying he only thinks of food as utility we're like good job wish i could be like that yeah like <laughs> yeah i i don't i i mean i feel like i don't want to be like that right and I, but i also think that that's not maybe something healthy for you to aspire to as a person that i'm getting to know as a person that i like as a person that is my friend that's not right either yeah no i and i do think that um i I've discussed this before with like my partner and stuff like that. And I think that my desire for the opposite extreme is because um, like going back to childhood and upbringing, I kind of had, I had the opposite end of like the parental experience where like my mom was this very controlling. um, She has OCD and um, is like her OCD prevents her from receiving treatment for it. It's that extensive. Uh Um, uh, And uh, my dad is like uh, the opposite, did not want me around um, or at least did minimally. Mm-hmm. And um, there's some feelings of resentment there that come through, I think, in, in some of his treatment of me throughout our life together. Um, and then again, back to my mom is like, I wasn't allowed to leave the house until I was 17. Like I wasn't allowed to go to friends' houses. Friends weren't allowed to come to my house. I, like when I finally could. I had to um, call from a home phone with the number unblocked and then also put a parent on the phone to make, to like, so my mom could prove where I was and that it was okay. I was there and that there were Mm -hmm. adult supervision. Um, So I think, you know, this relationship with my parents, that is the extreme in both directions, right? My dad is like incredibly nonchalant to the point where if I wasn't there, he wouldn't care. And then my mom is like this super overprotective, overbearing, um, you know, two steps short from putting me in a bubble uh, is, is where we were with her. I feel like psychologically, I came out kind of in the middle. So I think like food, it goes in that way too, of like, well, I have the current extreme where food is a reward and food is like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's literally a carrot on the end of the stick for me. And then there, there's this other guy who is utility food is fuel. That's that. And I'm like, maybe if I could, if I could marry them both, I'd also end up in the middle, like functioning. Right. Have you ever done any therapy around 
specifically like food and body image? Not really. And I, I think the reason why I, I haven't is because like, um, uh, again, like I would say probably around 22, which I'm 28 now. So six years ago was when I really, um, I like came into my own skin. Like when I finally like mm -hmm. started, you know, I was comfortable with my body. I was wearing, I was wearing, like, I was dressing in a way that flattered me as opposed to a way that hid me. Um, you know, taking my shirt off when I was at a pool or in the ocean, mm -hmm. because it's not comfortable wearing that. And also it doesn't actually hide anything. Like it's, it's not helping, you know what I mean? Right. It doesn't stop them from seeing my breasts. So, <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, so I, and then I didn't start going to therapy until around that time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just, you know, felt like I was kind of like my relationship with myself is getting more and more healthy. Um, so there was not really, I never really approached that. It was more about working on, you know, my relationship with those around me because I felt like my relationship with myself has kind of gotten as okay as it could get, which I know now six years after that thought, I know that's not true, mm -hmm. but it, it definitely, um, it's definitely something I, I would like to, um, go back to therapy about, because I do feel like the other stuff I, I was in therapy for three years before um, we had to go separate ways mutually. Um, and we keep in touch, my therapist and I. So now I'm thinking, you know, you bring that up and it is a good idea. I think I would enjoy going to now work more about my relationship with myself and not my relationship with my surroundings or with my, the mm -hmm. people around me. Yeah. body image or discussing body image among men is like taboo or whatever yeah or like it's not just, really talked about right like it's yeah. it's pretty mainstream for women to talk about you know beauty at any size mm -hmm. um body positivity mm -hmm. that kind of stuff uh and men get really left out of that conversation yeah and are possibly like i don't I guess, you know, suffering in silence where you don't think of eating disorders affecting men the mm -hmm. way that they affect women. Yeah. But they do. Yeah. Um, or just body dysmorphia mm -hmm. um, that comes with being short or being extra tall or being too fat or too skinny. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that you and I have talked about it a little and you joke about it like because there are women who yeah, have I've, stopped you i've been told during like sex like like they've mentioned about how skinny i was and how it was like uncomfortable like i don't want to get too graphic but you know well, right because it's like yeah. you're poking them with your bones yeah and not like, like in hips, the good way yeah yeah <laughs> um, i just thought that was like a weird thing to say like during something like that yeah, and it also kind of exposes you, and I don't know. I, I feel like it would be wildly inappropriate. Yeah. Say that you were having sex with a woman, and you were like... I said something about her body. Right, you said you yeah. stopped in the middle to be like, oh, I can't believe how, like, you're squishing me because so, your boobs are so big, or like, you just know... Just anything. Yeah, just anything. Yeah. You're not... 
it's not so, it's not socially acceptable to make comments like that about women because we presume that women are sensitive about their body and we presume that men are not which is honestly that's toxic masculinity as well because men don't have feelings the whole universe (laughs) just accepts oh men don't have feelings we can pick on them about their weight we can pick on them about their height we can pick on them about you know their acne or whatever because the presumption is men don't have feelings yeah I don't want to like come off as like or like claim to be like a victim of anything. I just thought it was like a weird thing to say during well, like, no, the I mean, moment of sex, talking but, about like my ribs and shit. <laughs> but do you? I get what you're saying though. You yeah. have, I mean, like when you are, like when you were growing up as a teenager, or even still, mm-hmm. like do you have? dysmorphic feelings about your body because you are a tall thin guy um i wouldn't say dysmorphic but i would like i could i looked in the mirror and like i just didn't like how skinny i was and uh i was i was honestly trying to find some pictures from like when i was like a kid like you could like see like every rib and like like i looked a little like unhealthy but uh my actor was like you're fine you'll grow into your body whatever the fuck that means <laughs> and uh i just like couldn't like put on like weight and i would like eat like a lot because i was like on the basketball team i was burning a lot of calories so i'd like eat like a decent amount and uh i took like a weight training class in high school because i thought that would like help me gain like muscle didn't gain like anything but uh, I just think I have like a really, really high like metabolism, which is like, I feel like if I was like shorter, I'd definitely be like, have more, be able to like put on like more muscle or like, like gain weight. But uh, <laughs> does, that- does that, I don't know if that's maybe it's just like my genetics or whatever, like my brother or me and are in two similar boats, like he's really like tall and skinny. And like my mom's like five seven, my dad's six six. He's he was a really skinny kid too when he was younger. But uh, yeah, I just like really for like nineteen years, I just wasn't a fan of how I looked in the mirror, you know. Did that change because your body changed, or change because your mind changed, or your outlook? I I didn't realize until very recently that a decent amount of girls find my body type attractive. I think that that's the Machine Gun Kelly effect. Maybe. <laughs> my girlfriend, she wasn't all bad. Like, she would do this one thing that I really liked. Uh, she wouldn't stop me during sex to complain about how skinny I am. <laughs> that was pretty nice of her. <laughs> Was that the context in which you developed, like, the mindset around your your body and the way that you look? Was it how attractive you would be to girls? 
Honestly, kind of. Because, like, like, looking back at, like, my high school, like, yearbooks and stuff, like, I don't think I was, like, a good-looking kid. Like, Nobody I I, in high school is a good-looking kid. Look I, back at your yearbook. Okay. Look back at your yearbook and look at the kids. Maybe do this when you're 25. Look back in your yearbook. Look at the kids you thought were, like, hot in high school. Okay. I remember, like, like in, like, seventh grade, like, looking at, like, like, like a guy or something, be like, oh, I can tell why women would find that person attractive, you well, know? Yeah. And I would look at myself, I was like, ew, you know? <laughs> well, I think that's, like, the, the, maybe that's, well, that's, maybe that's, that's the theory being, of high school relativity, yeah, you know? Maybe like, that's just being a kid. Yeah, being, I, it is, I think adolescence is hard, and I think that a lot of, a lot of people's sense of self and mm -hmm. also the societal pressures to look a certain way, to be a certain weight, to yeah. Uh, I think that those are codified in middle school somehow, mm -hmm. and then just reinforced throughout the course of people's lives, especially in the in the Western world. And do like media um, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, in the media. I think that I think that it's probably different across races. I don't think that it's any better or worse across races. Um, I think that you know, from my experience my experiences as a white cisgendered woman like the messages that I got about what a white cisgendered woman should look like were mm. really fucked up. Yeah. And even though I know that they're really fucked up, there are days and times yeah. in my life where that still affects me. Mm -hmm. I'm the same way. Yeah. I remember like when I was younger, like watching like Rambo and stuff being like, damn, I wish I looked like Sylvester Stallone and had like the giant like muscles and like, you know, right. And I was just a gawky, skinny kid. I'll be like, I'll never look like Rambo. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might never look like Rambo, but I don't know yeah. if that's really the the standard that you're going for. And what Chris and I were talking about is that what infuriates me mm -hmm. is that there's a standard at all. Yeah. So, um, I think societally we associate um class and like economic class mm -hmm. and um motivation ambition intelligence we all associate that with being mainstream attractive okay um huh. and so society looks at people who are overweight as being lazy and sloppy and okay. not as intelligent Uh, did that start when you were young? Did you like, were you like aware of like hyper aware? When you oh, were a yeah. Kid? I mean, for sure. My mom, I mean, I, I grew up in the 80s. Yeah. Where everybody was either, uh, there was a lot of pressure on women to be thin. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's, that still exists. Yeah. But in the 80s, I think was the height of diet culture mm -hmm. everybody was on a diet there diet were pills these and shit. diet pills there was uh all these like fad diets i remember my mom doing like the grapefruit diet it's where you basically only eat grapefruit um 
and like juicing diets. and stuff. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if she did that, but like just every there were diet books in our house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Somehow, I think it affected my older sister more mm-hmm. that she was you know a chubby kid and she started to i think in like the fucking fourth grade go on diets Jesus and my Christ. mom supported that uh, and would like my asshole just went inside my yeah body. and it's there is a a terrible culture of that i think especially among gen x maybe older mm-hmm. like me um, <laughs> i'm uh i'm what they now describe as a geriatric millennial that is a hurtful jesus that is a hurtful description but yeah so i think that that uh diet culture was particularly influential in in our youth mm-hmm um, as opposed to, and I think it's great that I think that there are, uh, specifically girls that mm-hmm. are born now or were born around when you were that aren't as, uh, obsessed with thinness. Mm-hmm. They may be still trying to achieve some kind of body type. Yeah. But bo- yeah, body standard. Yeah. But it's okay for women to have curves. It's actually preferred. Mm-hmm. There was a time in the 90s where the preferred body type was an anorexic, looked potentially definitely drug addicted. That was the body yeah. that people were just, were trying to achieve. Yeah, That's really messed up. Honestly, I lost a ton of weight right after college from working night shift and that's yeah but you were also killing yourself right right. yeah Yeah. so at that time i uh there there were like several factors Mm. where you know like i was probably i'm I'm five foot one Mm. after college i think it was like 125 okay um and then i started this night shift job did you at say you were like 90 pounds at some point? Yeah. 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 Jesus. Um, so what what happened is that, one, I couldn't sleep, and it was making me like kind of paranoid. Mm-hmm. Two, less it was less a body image problem, but it mm-hmm. was still, yeah. that was factored in there. Um, I I started to do a lot of reading about causes and sweatshops and uh migrant workers yeah. and abusive people in the food industry and and i it it became an overwhelming thing for me to the point mm-hmm. where like i could not do anything i couldn't yeah. because i couldn't morally it, this was 100 percent a product of my mental health mm-hmm. which was deteriorating because yeah. i couldn't sleep but one of the things that happened is that I became obsessed with like being good and not taking and not being, you know, a a burden on the earth or a burden to other people. I, uh, what does that look like? Well, in my, like 
almost psychotic state from not sleeping. It looked like not eating anything at all. Not drinking coffee. I drank, I, I, I like could drink water and drink, like eat vegetables that came out of my own garden. Wow. Yeah. And that's it though. I, yes. Jesus. Yeah. So by definition, mm-hmm. Tyler, I was anorexic. Yeah. It was not entirely wrapped up in body image. And I had to do a lot of work to get out of that mindset. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really helped was getting back on a normal schedule and actually sleeping. I yeah. was like, I'm not kidding, like almost psychotic. Yeah. Because of that time in my life. Also, I was working in a psychiatric hospital. It's yeah. not like a normal place to work. Yeah. It's not like a stress free yeah. work environment. Right. And I had several. As and I was pretty young. I was definitely young. I was like uh was one year older than you are now. Um, this is when all this like started. Mm-hmm. Wow. And uh I was I I just I had several tr- like traumatic things happen as mm-hmm. a result of yeah. that job, which I never even processed because it was just like just another night <laughs> yeah and you had to get up yeah. for work the next day so you kind of mm-hmm. really right or not get up to, i mean i just never yeah. went to bed yeah i was uh that was a, a terrible time in my life thank god it was short-lived How although i it? still carry a lot of that like it's it's kind of like my lizard brain, my like primordial brain yeah. will like tell me things about what is a, what is a good food and what is a bad food and what is healthy and what is unhealthy and what is, uh, I don't know, um, a drain on the earth, you know, mm-hmm. like things like that where I just feel like I, I tie food to morality in a way that is very unhealthy. Yeah. Still, even mm-hmm. though I am a healthier weight. Hmm. But it's definitely improved a lot since then, right? Um, like yeah, it's, that. yes, it has improved. Yeah. But I think that what, what I have. Because you can't just eat your fucking garden forever, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and also there's a lot of work to be done to get out of that, the mindset that forms when you are developing and deep in an eating disorder. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of undoing. And I know I always talk about this, but like those neural pathways, they're very strong. And so they still exist in there, even though I have to like actively work against them. And what I would liken that to or compare that to would be um recovery from drugs or alcohol where they say you know if you're if you're an alcoholic you're always an alcoholic if Mm -hmm. you're like the the process of recovery is constant yeah um i at least for me Mm -hmm. believe that that is true of like my eating disorder Mm -hmm. um 
I'm sorry, just stop. You okay? Because the show is about being open and vulnerable, I'm not going to lie. I had to take a break here and uh, cry a little bit. I think I kind of freaked Tyler out, and I'm sorry for that. During the, the time where I, I was taping your podcast, uh your co-host was like picking on you in a way that made me uncomfortable is that yeah. and then he said oh he loves it and I was like I doubt that <laughs> and I, I do, do people feel like you saying I'm comfortable with myself is opportunity for them to just uh I don't know kind of hurl fat phobic things at you well, so there's one thing that I think that happens in comedy a ton, and that is if I joke about it, that gives other people permission to joke with me about it. Like, it that just seems to be the way comics react with each other. Mm -hmm. If you have a joke on stage about a, a, a relationship with your dad or that relationship being difficult, then comics will, will roast you and bust balls and bring that up. Mm -hmm. um, as, as far as the... the the fat jokes go it it truly and <clears throat> i do again this is gonna come off as um internalizing and and self-hatred but it really is a situation where um i have i don't know if it's from the years of making the joke first mm -hmm. or like the self-deprecating humor like i still do it i try to avoid it because i know that it can hurt the people that are watching me as well. So when I do self-deprecating humor, I try to make it very specifically about me and mm -hmm. not fat people in general. Like the joke that I have about the about doing calculations when I am going to sit on furniture. That is a very me specific thing. When I do the joke about um, you know, me in the ocean or, uh, or the joke about catching a glimpse of myself in the mirror. That is all about me mm -hmm. personally. And I make sure to emphasize that this is how I feel about me. And, um, I have had overweight people come up to me after telling those jokes who like love those jokes. And it's because they relate to it without me saying, this is your experience as well. They're like, right. Oh, I feel that way too. Um, so I think when, when other comics bust on me, um, for being overweight or when we riff with each other about it, I, it, it truly doesn't bother me. I wouldn't say I love it, but I didn't love it. <laughs> yeah. And I know it can be, it can be awkward for other people for sure too, but yeah, it's not like I'm like, this is the best thing to happen in the world, but I'm also like, you know, there's, there's the part of me that is like, well, I make fun of it. So it, it would be, uh, hypocritical if I wasn't okay with other people making jokes mm -hmm. about it. Um, but also too, like, uh, it, it also depends on who it's coming from, right? Like uh, Jared, the co-host of Riff Busters is a very good friend of mine. I love him dearly. Um, and uh, I know that he doesn't think less of me for being overweight. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but now there's like other experiences where like, uh, so one of the, and I don't understand why it affected me so, so bad hindsight, but um, when I was in college, I worked full time uh, at a cell phone store. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we had to do at that store is uh, as part of our like rotation for duties, we had to do what's called working the lease line. So if anyone who hasn't worked in sales, when you're in like a shopping mall, your lease line is the door. You can't solicit beyond the door. So I had to stand in the doorway and like talk to people as they walked by and try to get them to come into the store. Okay. Um, there was one day specifically I was working the lease line and one of the military, like two military recruiters walked past and uh, the one, the one as like they were talking and then the one turned to look at me and he goes, you look like you'd really benefit from joining us and like patted me on the stomach. And I was like, uh, I didn't say anything. And then one of my coworkers who was inside goes, what the fuck did he just say to you? And I told them and he like chased the guy down and like ripped him a new one and then made like this adult man made this other adult man walk back to the store and apologize to me, which was demeaning in a different way. Like, well, yeah, I mean, that's, it's like calling so much attention to, yeah. 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 Um, definitely like a very kind gesture, which I very much appreciated from a coworker who did something they didn't have to do. Right. But that just made it so much worse for me. Am I like, that just really was a horrible experience. Um, but now like something like that, right. Like affected me for a while or like um, another fat phobic story. And this one will like, will stick with me forever. Uh, I was in between just getting, like it was the summer before I started college and uh, I was working at the local Target. I was mostly a cashier, um, but I was a cart attendant this day. And uh, it was like nine o'clock. The store was just about to close. And a car full of people uh, drove past me and said, uh, enjoy fat ass. And then threw a, like a bag full of McDonald's trash at me. And uh, I was like, that when it's all unboiled down to is like when it's hurtful. And I know that when like a friend, when we are friendly ribbing and they are making fun of me or making Mm -hmm. jokes about me being overweight, I know that is not all that person is boiling me down to. So that doesn't affect me as much. But like when a stranger, when it's like the only way that person is experiencing me, that's like, that's the stuff that like hurts really. Right. Um, the only thing I can kind of like, I, I tell people this kind of, I tell people this all the time, especially because I don't know if you, you know this, my, my partner identified as straight until we met, has only straight friends. We spend a lot of time around straight people and they're just like, it's like a, it's like a dripping faucet of little tiny homophobic things. Yeah. That kind of like just all add up. So there's that one thing that you're just like, wow. Mm-hmm. and I mean any I think any like any othering in society is similar to that like where I'm sure that over the course of your day I mean I can imagine that over the course of your day there are little there's a, a dripping faucet of fat phobic things yeah I, I mean as I've gotten with age it's definitely gotten less and less 
um, like concerning or like hurtful. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it is still, you know, there are still situations, there are still times where, you know, there are small things. And um, it, there's also too, like, uh, unintentional things too, which is also my baggage. Like, I have to accept that. Like, uh, it's, it's very stupid, but um, there are times where, like, when I'm in a very vulnerable state, like, if I'm not in a great place mentally, um, if my partner smells something bad and asks if I farted, that can be like, like minutely triggering of mm -hmm. that fat phobia. Because even if we're the only two person in the room, but two people in the room, but that's because that was my experience for so long. You know what I mean? It was, it, I never, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, I just never wanted to be that. I didn't use public restrooms because I, you know, didn't want people to like, there's still a little baggage there too. Like if I have to pee while we're at target and someone is like in the bathroom and it smells really bad, I will not go to the bathroom because I'm, I am afraid that I'm going to leave and someone's going to be like, wow, like I really fucking tore it up in there. Right. Um, you know, and it, it's weird too, that it's so much with strangers, but I do think it's because like, um, I like interacting with people and I like yeah. getting to know people and uh, if if this is my one chance, I don't want it to be like that that you remember about me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't want people to remember that I'm fat or whatever the case may be. You know, I want it to be something else. And uh, I think I've gotten to that point. You know, I think that like at this current point in time, I don't think it's necessarily the first thing people think of when they think of me. Um, at least in most cases, mm -hmm. but I also think that was like a long time of work. Like it was difficult. I think what's really aggravating for me and what I'm hearing that you, you say, what's really aggravating is that you're doing all this work, right. To self-actualize and what, like, that's that's actually backwards like we should be doing the work as a society to just like not have standards for weight sexuality attractiveness success like but instead you're just like well you're just doing all this work to get right with you and that's great yeah but it just makes me kind of like angry well i i think I understand why it's that way, but I also to think that like the way we get to that point is <laughs> not to give myself too much credit, but the way we get to that point is people like me. Well, like, yeah. The, you have to have you have to have the the people who are breaking that mold or that stereotype for society to kind of be like, oh, like wow, okay, like um, you know not all overweight people are this way, not all gay people are this way, not all, you know, non-gender conforming people are this way. Like, you just have to, like, it takes a handful of people working really, really hard to defy those, you know, uh, stereotypes in order for those stereotypes to kind of go away. So like one of the things too is like, you know, one of the ways I try to do this is the way I, I dress. I, I think I dress fairly well um mm -hmm. i dress confidently like i'm not afraid to like I, 
it's weird to say as an overweight guy because it's not exactly like people are fawning to see it, but I'm not afraid to show off my body. Um, I'm not afraid, you know, I, in the summertime, my button shirt, my button down shirts, I'm like four buttons unbuttoned, like cleavage showing if necessary, whatever it takes. You know what I mean? I'm, I, I, but I, I'm doing it because I'm comfortable. It's not performative. I'm doing that because that feels good to me. I like Uh looking that way. I like feeling that way. It makes me confident. It makes me feel good about myself. So then other people see me looking that way or dressing that way or whatever the case may be. And like, you know, I, (laughs) it's funny because I, I do, it does make me feel good when people come up to me after a show or whatever the case may be. And like, say something in regards to that because it shows that it's working you know what I mean like I've had right. I've had um and <laughs> it's funny because it never comes off quite the way they intend but like at a show I had recently it was an outdoor show and I had wearing uh one of my very loud loudly patterned button-down shirts it looked like 3d glasses it's like red and blue flowers all over it um pretty far unbuttoned my hair was like it was one like I uh, only recently have been like getting more and more comfortable, like admitting that I think I'm an attractive person and mm-hmm. not having to qualify it as a fat person. Like I, it was when, when I was a kid, it was always I'm pretty good looking for an overweight guy. And then it has just changed more and more to just me being like, I do think I'm you know, I'm not a 10, but I'm like a five or a six. Like I'm pretty good, you know, and uh, I had someone. I can reframe it the right way after he says it, but someone came up to me after the show and was like, I wish I had like an ounce of the confidence you have. And he wasn't, it wasn't an overweight guy. He was, you know, he was like fairly normally built, um, you know, maybe a little on the short side or whatever the case may be. And it was, Mm -hmm. it's nice that like you're acknowledging that, but also too, like it was hard work getting to this point. So there are two things that I think are very important in comedy. And one of the reasons why I I still have, because there was a period of time where I tried to do no self-deprecating humor. And then I came back into doing some. Mm-hmm. And like, well, first of all, it's good because it engages the audience, right? I say what they're thinking. So if I open up with a joke about being an overweight person, that immediately like stops them in that head. It like... Because it, it can happen where people might be sitting in the audience and be like, wow, he's a big guy and like other things. You know what I mean? Like that might be all they focus on. So I do the self-deprecating stuff up front very early to try and disarm that. Um, but also too, like the the confidence on stage and, and stuff like that. I mean, I have to say comedy is kind of what gave me my, helped me develop my confidence just overall. Um, mm-hmm. Like... Uh, you know, I I see it a lot, you know, in other people who are like overweight or lack self self confidence, but are doing comedy um, and just like haven't been doing it a long time. They um, there's no other way to put it than they kind of collapse in on themselves. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Their their shoulders come forward. They're kind of they're minimizing their yeah. They're kind of like yeah. yeah. They cover up. They try and like min- they try to shrink themselves. Um, and uh, with time, I'm sure they'll they'll come away from that. But like in comedy, you just have to do the opposite of that. Right. Like I've I've always talked when when people are asking me advice about comedy and stuff like that. I was like, 
you just have to control the stage in whatever way necessary. I'm not a comedian who like walks around the stage, but it's because I don't need to do that for my presence to seem big. I'm loud and uh, and I'm confident. So like that is that works for me. I don't have to like pace the stage to like own my space or anything like that. Like I'm a big guy and I'm loud. So that is my owning the space. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the first two years in comedy, I was I was the same way. I was, you know, trying to shrink myself on stage or or really minimize, you know, um, I would I remember and <laughs> the all of the recordings are gone, thankfully, but for like the first year I've done, I did comedy, I performed almost sideways. Like I would, I was like staggered on stage where like my left foot would be forward and my right foot would be back. And I would like gesture with my front hand and hold the mic with my, my back hand. And like, that was how I performed for a while because it was my way of like trying to shrink myself and try and mm-hmm. like look, look, you know, as small as possible or, or try to not make that, you know, all the people think about when I get on stage. Um, but yeah, now I, I do think you have to, and, and it helps too that like, it certainly helps that I don't, um, like I had said earlier, I have those issues of like not feeling like a fat person now that like, I think kind of helps give that confidence. Like I just, I think the reason why I don't have that fear or, you know, I don't behave in the way we traditionally see overweight people behave is because I don't view myself as an overweight person. Like until I'm, you know, walking up a couple flights of stairs and I'm winded before other people, then, then it kind of hits me. But, you know, outside of those moments, I really don't, I don't feel that way. I don't notice it. And I do, yeah, it's just interesting to think of, of it that way as like, I, I do try to be, and, and this is something I've done as long as I've done podcasts is I always try to be honest and vulnerable because I do know that like, not like I have a huge listenership or like there are tons of people, but there might be one person who is like Mm -hmm. hearing me talk about, you know, my struggle with mental health or you know, what's been going on or how I'm nav- how I'm getting through something or whatever the case may be. And it might help them. And even if it doesn't help them, it helps me. Like that's the selfish aspect of it is like having to verbalize stuff and talk through it does help you. If you ask somebody to name five negative things about themselves, they can do it in like 30 seconds. Right. If you ask, if you ask somebody to name one positive thing about themselves, nine out of 10 people, it's going to take them at least a minute to like figure out what they want to say. And I think that is not because they're trying to pick the one thing, but it is, they're trying to think of those positives. Mm-hmm. You know, they can think of all the negative things about themselves super easily because that's what your body needs to protect itself. Yeah. But exactly. you know, the positive things don't benefit you. So, so they're harder to find. Yep. Yeah. And they're, they're stored in different places. They're stored in places that you have to activate rather than things that activate like in a primordial way, just yeah. like a hormone that's sent through your body that makes you remember the time that you, I don't know, dropped your lunch tray in middle school or something. Yeah. That's just mine. One time I turned around and smushed my whole lunch tray onto somebody's body. 
a oh. much cooler kid a much cooler kid wow yeah that couldn't <laughs> have happened it couldn't have been like a worse kid too you know what i mean it was yeah man that sucks yeah i <clears throat> you know there are things like that with me too like i know um uh i had similarly an experience in high school where um my every we took turns uh taking up everyone else's tray at the lunch table and it was usually just the kid who sat down last took up everyone's tray mm-hmm. um and uh i hated when it was my turn because uh one day specifically a much older i was in like ninth grade and it was a senior in the in our lunch and he was sitting at a table with other cool attractive teens uh I thought they were attractive back then. I don't think they're attractive now because they're under 18. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, no, this like table of just like hot kids, right? Uh, the one kid stopped me and he's like, did you eat all those? I was just like, fuck, never again. I, I don't think I ate another lunch at school the rest of that year because if I didn't eat lunch, I didn't have to take trays up. So, <laughs> so I just skipped lunch every day. <laughs> Truthfully, and it's... <laughs> It sounds really, um, not to minimize my experience, but I understand uh, this may not sound traumatic to some people, but this is truly one of the most traumatic things I've ever experienced as somebody who who felt seen, um, who felt known, uh, you know, who was loud and tried to be funny and talkative and nice to everybody. Um, on my high school graduation day, uh, a kid who was in my homeroom every year of high school asked me if I was homeschooled because he didn't recognize me. Mm-hmm. And um, that hurt so bad because we had talked, we had been friendly. He is somebody who I would have referred to as like a school friend. Like we never hung out outside of school, but we had classes together and we talked pretty much every day because we were in homeroom together. We had math together or whatever other classes some years. And it wasn't a joke. Like he wasn't kidding. He genuinely did not know who I was. And, And it was in that moment that I like, that I think was kind of where it started for me. And I had to change that. Like I wanted to change that. Like, I wanted to, you know, I went off to college and, and uh, I became much more outspoken socially. Like I be, I began like, you know, um, inserting myself into conversations, talking to people, not in like that annoying way, like the guy you wish would go away. But like, uh, I, you know, I, I just liked interacting with people. And, you know, if I was in a situation, if I'm waiting in line for something and like, somebody's talking to another person and there's like room for me to interject I would interject just to like make a comment and and know that like those people you know walked away and even if they're saying like fuck that guy I can't believe he just thought he could talk to us like at least there was something there um and it became I I think one of the reasons why it was so traumatic that one single comment was because um I was this person who felt like I took up space and like I took up too much space being overweight. And then to find out that I'm doing both, that I'm like, that I'm physically taking up too much space, but psychologically taking up zero space. I was like, 
I got to work on that other one then. Cause it's way more easier for me to take up more psychological space than it is for me to take up less physical space. Cause no matter how much weight I would lose, I would always be a bigger person. You know what I mean? Like, even if I lost 200 pounds over the next year or two, I'm still six foot two and I would still be 200 pounds. That's still a big person who's going to mm-hmm. like take up physical space. So, so then my goal, and maybe this is why like comedy was something I took seriously as opposed to something like, oh, that'd be fun to do. Like I thought when I was a teenager and I actually started doing it was because I'm now demanding that psychological space um, that I felt like I was not afforded previously. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that that moment was, I think, moving forward that when I like really, really decided I wanted to work on myself in both cases, even if that didn't mean like losing weight, but just being more comfortable and, and loving who I am and stuff like that. And of course it took time, but, uh, and there's always room to improve, you know, like I've, I've talked about how I still have issues at times, um, with Mm -hmm. either internalized fat phobia or with um, things other people say um, triggering this like shame um, around being fat. Um, But I think the amount of progress I've made to this point shows me that there's still progress going forward and that I like will be able to do that. Being aware that you have these feelings and knowing that they're not healthy. Yeah. What do you do for yourself to to change your perspective on your on your body, on how you feel about other people's bodies? I mean, I feel like I'm pretty like I like I like other people's bodies. It's mainly about myself. Mm Like, like I like women who are thicker, women who are skinnier, you know? Like, I have, like, a wide... I like a lot of female body types in terms of, like... <laughs> yeah, samesies. Yeah. But <laughs> how do you improve... Myself? Yes. Um, fuck, that's a hard question. Yeah. I mean, I guess... I could do like positive affirmations and just like not see myself as just my body and like just see like the whole being of Tyler. That sounds like hippie dippy bullshit, but I've been smoking a decent amount of weed lately. And, <laughs> yeah. And um but yeah, just like know that like this is kind of like a new agey thing but it's like uh like you are like not your body and like you are not your mind like you're the whole thing Mm -hmm. like you're the uh the witness to everything so like just not to get like hung up or like and not like self-criticize myself like as much like oh you're too skinny Mm -hmm. and just try to like accept myself i feel like i do a pretty good job of that recently but yeah i it hasn't been like that for the majority of my life right yeah and it's not about doing external things like yeah it's all internal yeah Yeah. i feel like the 
the exercising, the weightlifting, the boxing, you know, mm-hmm. you're boxing, I'm not boxing. Mm-hmm. But for me, that's still, that's very external. Like I <laughs> watch the Olympics and I want to look a certain way. Yeah. That may still be unhealthy and I should probably explore that because I do have some healthy, unhealthy uh, behaviors mm-hmm. around my like body and food and weight. Yeah. But I think it, and positive affirmations always sounds corny as hell to me. Yeah, I know. But making sure that you're telling yourself that, you know, there is nothing wrong with your body. Mm -hmm. Whether it's skinny or fat or short or disabled, Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with your body. Yeah. You can seek to improve whatever you want. Yeah. If you want bigger muscles or yeah. What? But that's that's external. Mm-hmm. The internal work is also about just like I said. That's really corny, but like sometimes I just like I just thank whatever the mm-hmm. universe for the body I've been given mm-hmm. and the skills that it has. Yeah. Um. I don't know. Maybe someday it'll work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's it. That's our show. I want to thank Chris William for his insight and his willingness to be so open with us. You can find Chris on Facebook or Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at Gorky Romano. You can also find him streaming on Twitch at twitch.tv slash upanduppod. Listen to his other podcasts, Riffbusters, with our friend Jared McKelly, and listen to I'm Annoyed, where Chris and his fiance hash out minor grievances. Our plan is to put out another eight episodes between now and the holiday season. Please keep tuning in. And if you or a loved one is struggling with an eating disorder, you can contact the National Eating Disorder Association helpline at one 800 And remember that body acceptance is a journey, and there's no such thing as a standard or ideal beyond what is ideal for you. Caring for yourself is not selfish, and you deserve the kind of love and grace that you extend to everyone else. And you're funny. You're so funny. There was a woman at the open mic. She was like almost six foot. And uh, me and Kyle Neff were like, whoa, she's like an Amazon, like Wonder Woman. Because she was like, she seemed like she could bench press me. Was she gay? I don't think so. No, bummer. (laughs) She was very cute. I might uh, come out to that Harrisburg open mic where nobody is vaccinated (laughs) to see a six foot tall super Amazon lesbian. But I'm not coming. Hmm? Is that Phantom? This was on Monday. After I left? No. She left before I went up. Hang on. Did she, Was she a comic? No, I don't think so. I mean, I got there late. Oh, just a tall lady? <laughs> <laughs> I'm uninterested now. <laughs> like, there was a tall lady on Monday. Yeah. Uh, I, she had a Wonder Woman type physique. A Wonder Woman type. 
How did I not know? And she was very tall, which you know what Amazons are? Yes, I know what an Amazon (laughs) is. 